my name is Lee Chittenden. I'm with the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance here at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. I'd like to welcome you today. Um, before we get started, I have a couple housekeeping items. Um, first, please make sure your cell phones are silenced. And we will be incorporating questions into the conversation later on. So if you have questions, um, we'll be passing these around, fill them out, and we'll collect them later. Um, I also wanted to let you know about our last event coming up this semester. It's on December 10th. We'll have Noam Levy here. He'll be talking about Medicare for All and healthcare affordability. Um, you can find more information about that on our website. And now on to today's program um, on women running for office. I'm very pleased to introduce our moderator today, Katherine Pearson. She's a professor in the political science department here at the University of Minnesota. She specializes in American politics, and her research focuses on United States Congress, congressional elections, political parties, and women in politics. Please join me in welcoming Katherine Pearson. Great, thank you, Lee, and thank you for the Center for hosting today's event. Um, you'll hear from me a little bit later, but my main job right now is to introduce our guest, uh, Kelly, Professor Kelly Dittmer, who is an assistant professor of political science at Rutgers University Camden and a scholar at the Center for American Women in Politics at the Eagleton Institute of Politics. Professor Dittmer is the co-author of A Seat at the Table, Congresswomen's Perspectives on Why Their Representation Matters, which was just published by Oxford University Press in 2018, and she is the author of Navigating Gendered Terrain, Stereotypes and Strategy in Political Campaigns, published in 2015. Her research focuses on gender and American political institutions. She is also, most recently, the author of Unfinished Business, Women Running in 2018 and Beyond. And today, she's going to give us her perspectives on what happened in the 2018 elections and, uh, significantly, what to expect as the 2020 nominating contest and presidential elections uh, are heating up. So we'll start off this program by having Professor Dittmar speak for about 15 minutes and appear from the podium and then the two of us will uh, uh, chat, but I'll be informed by all of the questions that you fill out in our writing as Professor Dittmer speaks. So please uh, fill out those cards so that I'll have plenty of questions to ask her. I also want to recognize the fact that we have former legislator Phyllis Kahn here in our audience and former Secretary of State Joan Grow in the audience. So not only do we have uh, a star scholar of women in politics, but we have former women elected officials as well. So everyone, welcome, and please welcome Professor Kelly Dittmer. So thank you so much. So basically, the folks in the audience could just come up and speak and tell this story. But I'm glad to be here. And thanks for, uh, to uh, the Institute for giving me this opportunity to talk about, in particular, this report that we wrote um, about 2018, um, but also more broadly about the questions we have and the sort of day-to-day -day realities that face women in politics um, in this particular era. So those of you who were up late last night watching the debate, um, who are watching the impeachment inquiry, all all of this stuff, right? There are many ways in which gender is playing out in politics, and I hope we'll get to talk about some of that as well. Um, so I want to start 28 years ago um, when the then director of the Center for American Women in Politics, Ruth Mandel, um, and scholar Erwin Gertzog prefaced what was a, a newsletter that we would put out at COP with a quote-unquote note of caution about characterizing 1992 as the year of the woman. And this is what they wrote. 
The matter of parity for women and men in high public office is not a project of a single year or even a single generation. After all, we are talking about rearranging an ancient pattern, namely men's leadership of the public world. That takes time. Over two and a half decades later, Ruth and Irwin were proven right. Um, while women's congressional representation tripled from the fall of 1992 to 2018, um, women were still just 20% of the members of Congress as we went into the 2018 election. At the time, there were 11 states that had no, women, uh, represent no women's representation in Congress. And if you look down um, different levels of office, of course, those gender disparities were pervasive, again, even in 2018. So the, that time that they said it, it would take was still uh, continuing and is still today. In the spring of 2018, my boss, Debbie Walsh, who's the director of COP, and I uh, issued a similar statement of caution that we published in Huffington Post about the 2018 election, um, in which we urged particularly practitioners and advocates for women in politics to, quote unquote, under promise and over deliver. Um, we were seeing the narrative of the wave and the surge, and it was going to be, you know, uh, the biggest year for women, and we're concerned that we are sort of putting ourselves in the same box as what happened in 1992. Um, we also make the case, or made the case, that any, identifying any single year as a quote-unquote year of the woman is problematic by focusing on a sort of unlikely confluence of factors as necessary to yield victory or progress for women candidates, we ri risk perpetuating the idea that women's political success is an anomaly. Um, we also risk masking the long-term structural factors that impede widespread short-term access or success uh, for women across election cycles. And so, um, that's what we did throughout the cycle, repeatedly being the wet blanket when media called us to say like, yes, it's a good year, but um, here are the challenges. Um, and I think ultimately um, it was a smart strategy for us because we did and women did over deliver based on what our sort of baseline uh, thoughts about what could happen for women were. But our caution and our sort of lens of caution to understand 2018 also allowed us to see that the results from 2018 um, did not mean that the job was done in terms of gender parity in politics. Um, and so we were able to take 2018, look at it with a critical lens. And that's really the vision and lens with which um, I wrote this report, Unfinished Business. And from the title alone, you can get the, the sort of takeaway from it, right? Um, I should say that the um, proud of this, that the report is a microsite um, that's very interactive at womenrun.records.edu. So I hope you'll check it out. Um, so I'm just going to point to a couple of top line fi findings. Try not to talk too long, because I do want to get to the Q&A. Um, with another expert. Um, and so let me just hit on a couple of pieces that are from the report, but that take us from what happened in 2018 and how then does that inform our thinking about 2020 and the questions we might want to raise. So one, women made history in the 2018 election, but well, there's lots of buts in this talk, um, but have not achieved parity with men in uh, electoral politics. So a couple of data points that you're probably all aware of, a record number of women ran for congressional and gubernatorial posts in 2018, but women remain less than 25% of candidates on primary ballots in 2018, and they were less than a third of candidates on general election ballots. So the story in the media, record numbers, but we forgot the denominator in many cases, right? Um, 
In terms of win rates, it was also a really good story for women. So they were winning, um, at least in a sort of blunt measure, at higher rates than men. And they also, um, on the Democratic side, were responsible for over 50% of flipped seats. So the seats that went from um, Republican to Democrat, um, not only in the House, um, but also um, in gubernatorial seats nationwide. So you might say that women are electable um, in that vein. Um, and also, a record number of women serve, obviously, in Congress today. So the outcomes of the 2018 election um, were that we do have more women in Congress and state legislatures. But while women are over 50% of the population, they still are less than a third of elected officials across these levels of office. So the first sort of numbers are important. Secondly, the gender story of 2018 was not a singular one. Um, here, especially in regard to who and which women were successful. Uh, so sort of contrary to the wave and surge rhetoric of the 2018 election, the gains for women in election 2018 were concentrated entirely among Democratic women at every level of office. The number of Republican women declined in the U.S. House, among governors, among statewide elected executive officials, and in state legislatures nationwide between 2018 and 2019. Probably the most stark piece in which we see um, more regularly is that in the House, the women went, Republican women went from 23 members to just 13. There are 435 members in the House, just to check you there. Um, and already two of those women have said they're not running for re-election in 2020. Um, I should also note, if you're watching the impeachment hearings, that there's a lot of attention to Elise Stefanik for a lot of reasons, um, but one of those reasons may be that she is the only Republican woman on this committee, right? Um, and so that's because we have these numbers that are, are quite low in the House. The gender story in and as a result of 2018 is also intersectional. Uh, with different successes and hurdles for women coming from different racial and ethnic backgrounds, something that I think also sometimes got lost in the storytelling. Um, so women of color, again, success in, overall, if we look as a, as a group, um, women of color serve in record numbers in Congress today, in statewide elected executive offices, and in state legislatures. Um, we saw the first ever women of color elected to Congress from states like Minnesota, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and Kansas. But at the same time, as of 2019, 26 states have never sent a woman of color to Congress. Um, we also saw um, three states elect their first women governors, including the first Democratic woman of color ever elected governor in the United States um, in New Mexico. Um, and just to give you one other data point that demonstrates the sort of what I would talk about as sort of the recent history for women of color and progress in American politics that is different if we're telling a story about white women or women generally, is that in all of US history, we have had 50 women of color serve in statewide elected executive offices. So these are 311 offices, uh, attorneys general, secretary of state, et cetera, uh, throughout the country. 50. Today, 220 men serve in those positions currently, right? So again, to give you context of where we're at in terms of the progress for women, far from a point of, of parity. Um, and then I should note one other positive thing about um, the sort of intersectional story that gets lost if you're not looking at the intersection of race and gender, which is that 
about 40% of the new women of color elected to the US House were represented, or were elected, excuse me, in majority white districts. This matters because one of the challenges for women of color in politics has been political practitioners who say, you can't win in that district, or you can't win statewide, or you can't win a presidential race because you have to appeal to a majority white electorate. Um, these women, unlike this, these are numbers different than what we've seen historically, um, demonstrate and disrupt that argument that in some way they're not electable because of their racial and ethnic identities. Um, and then the one of the last points I want to make about 2018 is that the story of women's political success in 2018 goes beyond the numbers, right? So we spend a lot of time at the center that I work at collecting the numbers, crunching the numbers. Um, but certainly when we're thinking about gender and power and, and elections, we have to think beyond who's there um, and the sort of demographic differences. It's also important to look at the diversity um, in women's paths to office. Why did they run? What motivated them? And I'm not going to get into this, but I'm just going to say, and I think we'll talk about it probably in Q&A, which is that there is also not a single story. All women did not wake up after election day and all of a sudden decide they wanted to run for political office. The media would have had you believe that. That is not the case. There may have been some of those women, right? And there were certainly women who spoke to media and said that, um, but that was not the majority. Um, and also, we want to look at how women run for office. And this is the subject of, of my first book, so I could talk way too long about this. But um, what are the ways in which um, they're engaging and navigating gender and race and the intersection of both in, in how they uh, campaign for office? Um, so it can be from challenge and stereotypes. How do they use gender as an electoral asset instead of a liability to overcome? We saw that done quite effectively in 2018. Um, are they waiting to run? We saw women running at younger ages um, with young kids. And how do they, in doing that, sort of disrupt the institutional norms or what we expect to see in candidates and officeholders? And I should add here as well that men play an important role in that disruption too, right? So they're also playing into gender stereotypes you could look at our president um, in terms of the performance of masculinity um, and how that is maintained, as well as some men and male candidates who are disruptive of that approach. So what does this all mean for 2020? Um, so first, I want to be clear that the success of women in 2018 didn't fully upend the entrenched institutional norms and structures that have put women at electoral disadvantage in the US. Um, so I'll just direct you to the report here, but again, assume we'll talk about some of these things. But um, some of the topics uh, in the report that we talk about in terms of persistent barriers are uh, women having to work harder to achieve the same result, maybe. Women in the room may understand that. Um, stereotypical biases, both of gender and candidacy, violence and harassment, which is often of a different form when directed at women, uh, gatekeeping by political parties and those who control them, media biases, um, both who covers politics and in what ways. And we can point to plentiful examples of these barriers already in 2020, if we are watching at least at the presidential level. Last week, we also had elections um, in, in a number of states, particularly at the state legislative level. 
We had four uh, state elections, so a, a few notable numbers perhaps from that. Not that they predict much about 2020, but I think it's important to see how these numbers are not necessarily continually upward for women. Um, so yes, women were a greater proportion of all state House and Senate nominees um, in these past state elections than they were in previous cycles. That's a good sign that we're seeing an upward trend. Um, but Republican women were less than 30% of Republican nominees in these races while Democratic women were more than 30% of their nominees. The point being that Democratic women were much better represented among their partisans in terms of candidates. In fact, in one state, they were over 50% of the candidates uh, running for office. Um, so some progress, as well as some of the same persistent patterns. Um, we also saw women made gains across these states, but they were really minimal. In other words, none of these states jumped up significantly in women's representation. Um, the gains were also more equal among Democrats and Republican women than they were in 2017 or previous cycles. So that bodes slightly better, perhaps, for Republican women. But we are talking about states like um, Mississippi, um, in particular, right, um, uh, Louisiana, states in which the, the partisan uh, differences uh, are are leaning Republican. Um, and then one other thing in Virginia in 2017, that was a state in which it actually did prove in some way to be a harbinger of what was going to happen for women at the congressional level um, in 2018. So we saw a number of women challengers uh, defeat incumbents um, at a higher rate than the men and in higher numbers um, and help to, I have been talking about a sort of phase one of taking over the Virginia legislature um, for Democrats. This year, all those women won re-election, but basically no new women. I think there was one or two sort of women challengers on the Democratic side who were successful. So that story about like, oh, we're going to continue to sort of take over um, was, was not the case in Virginia. I don't know that that's a harbinger of anything in 2020, but something to watch for. Um, and then um, as we look to 2020 in terms of the potential women House candidates, a couple of trends there. Um, we are seeing a uh, slightly higher number this year, so we could break the, the record again of number of women running, although it's really early, so women will drop out. So there's no clear sign that we're de definitively going to break that record that we set in 2018 for just the number of women running for the House. Um, we also are seeing some closing of the partisan gap, and this is expected. So when the Democrats are in power, there are fewer Democrats that run. Um, and so there are more Republican women running this time as uh, challengers uh, to Democratic incumbents. And so they've closed the gap a little bit. Democrats are still about 65% of the women potential candidates, but you are seeing more, uh, more Republicans than last time. And then one last piece on the numbers is that we're also watching there are a lot more Democratic women challenging members of their own party in the U.S. House, which you may refer to as sort of the AOC or Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez effect, um, which is women who are like, hey, she won. Um, I wonder if I could do it as well. Uh, I would just remind everybody that there were only two of those women who actually won um, in 2000, who were challengers within their own party who won, her and Ayanna Presley. So I'm not sure how that bodes for all these women who are running, um, but certainly that number uh, seems to be high right now. Um, and so I'll finish there because I've thrown out way too much in terms of data and topics we could cover. Um, but I do want to also sort of just commend you to the, the report itself for some thoughts about 
what are the questions we want to look forward to in, in 2020? What are these trends that we might watch for and track? And we'll be doing that at the Center for American Women in Politics. So uh, certainly stay tuned uh, to our center. And also we're kind of bringing in some other voices, expert voices, um, to try to weigh in on these questions as well as we get into 2020. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Professor Dittmer, for an excellent presentation um, that evokes a lot of questions. Hopefully, you're all filling out your note cards. But I want to start with a question that I think is on everyone's mind, thinking about the 2020 nominating contest, and that is electability. Mm -hmm. And I just want to repeat something that you said. Yeah. Um, you noted that not only did women win at the same rate as men, as they typically do, women actually, Democratic women, won at a higher rate mm -hmm. than non-incumbent Democratic men. Yep. And so I think that's really important because among academics and women's groups, it's sort of long been known that women and men win at the same rate, but not very many women run. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of women ran, still underrepresented, and the women who ran won at higher rates than uh -huh. similarly situated men. Mm -hmm. And so if you could talk a little bit more about that in the context of 2018, but then also talk about, given that evidence, why is electability such a problem or a potential problem or a perceived problem for women candidates in 2020? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so, so this is the data point, yeah, that I continually will go back to when, like, the, the, the reporters call and say, like, so, but isn't there, there's still this question of electability, and I said, sure, but we actually have empirical evidence, right, that, that this is not, should, should not be the question, perhaps, that folks are making it. Um, so certainly, the win rates in and of themselves are important. I think specifically that where these women flipped seats mm -hmm. and where they won is really important. Um, so you, women were responsible for flipping the House from Republican to Democrat. Like that, that you can look at the number of seats that were flipped um, and where they were. These were women in competitive purple, if you will, districts um, that if you're thinking about a presidential race would be quite important, right? So the question always is, well, can they win in the Midwest? Can they win in these? Well, that's where these women uh, won. Cindy Axney and Abby Finkenhauer and Abigail Spanberger and in Michigan, right? Like uh, Haley, St like you have all these cases in which you saw these women run and win effectively. Um, I think there was something about 2018 that we can't quite as sort of scholars pinpoint about a potential gender advantage. Um, and I'm not one to say like th there is proof that women had an advantage, but I do think women effectively leveraged a moment Mm -hmm. um, in which they could talk about the distinct value of having more gender diversity and experiential diversity in office in a way that perhaps in previous cycles had not been valued in, by voters. And I say that in the context of Me Too, right? So there is a bit of um, questioning the imbalance of power in our institutions and saying like, well, maybe that hasn't gotten us where we need to get. Um, and there were some women, not all of these women in swing districts uh, were using that argument, but certainly some women who were saying, yeah, we should also apply that to politics. So as we think about electability in 2020, I think that it is pointing to those numbers. It's pointing to the fact that a woman won the popular vote 
in 2016. Um, I, I like, I get, I, I understand the electoral college, and I, but also like we this. The idea that a woman can't win over voters, which is at the root of an electability question, right? It's less about the electoral college. It's more about like, will voters actually vote for a woman? Well, they did. So that we, we shouldn't actually have to talk about. The other piece of this, which is a broken record, I'm sure you all sort of, is electability is determined by who you vote for. Right, so preordaining electability based on who won in the past will perpetually discriminate against those who have not been in power, um, which is obviously illogical. I'm not sort of saying anything too enlightening, um, but reminding people of that I think is important. Um, so playing into the presumption that somehow women aren't electable at this level is basically saying because they have not been elected, they cannot be elected. And any young person who tries to get a job and they say like, well, you need experience. Um, and you're like, but I need a first job. To, we need a first woman president, right, to, to push back against some of those claims. So I did have in my note, and I just, so better than I, I think uh, Kamala Harris at, in her conversation about electability um, has sort of made it clearer and better, to, and I think an argument that is effective, um, and I should just say before noting the quote, that I do think we have to also pay attention to the additional labor that women candidates have to do in simply answering questions about electability, and that in and of itself is demonstrative of the the different terrain that they, they navigate. Um, but so she's been asked about this, right? And you may have seen this clip where she's like, this is not a new conversation for me. I'm gonna talk about this. And she said, I have faith in the American people to know that we will never be burdened by the assumptions of who can do what based on who historically has done it. I know the American people enough to know that we have the ability to believe and see and have faith to believe and see um, uh, and be unburdened by what has been. Um, and so I think really pointing to that sort of what the, are the roots of electability is especially important in debunking the question itself. Thank you. I want to talk about candidate emergence. Um, you made the point that 2018 wasn't just about women waking up the day after the 2016 election and being upset about Trump. Um, that played into it, but there were a lot of factors and a lot of structural factors involved. Um, but could you talk about women's candidate emergence and how it may differ from men's and how it is also changing as more women are in electoral office and there are more examples of different types of women? Absolutely. So. Uh, there's a lot of great research on this that I have not done, but that I have certainly um, drawn from, and then I'll talk a little bit about how that informed our thinking about 2018. Um, but so my colleagues at the Center for American Women in Politics um, did a sort of large study of women state legislators. Um, this was in 2008, geez, a long time ago, but still I think really influential in thinking about how we talk about candidate emergence um, and the challenges that women face, women face differently than men, and they also have some important um, sort of intersections findings which find, for example, uh, that women of color are more likely to be discouraged from running. So we asked about, you know, are you likely to be encouraged from who? How important is that in your decision making? Um, and finding that women of color are more likely to be discouraged but still run, right? So 
I always say like the counter to that is like, imagine if that barrier wasn't there, right? Um, and so in addition, we find, and this is consistent with other literature, not just that study, um, that encouragement matters more for women. That is not to say simply asking women to run for office gets them to run, It's a little pet peeve of mine. Um, certainly you need to ask women and tell women they should run. But when we say encouragement matters, it is showing women the path to be successful. So I am going to ask you to run and also help you to navigate this institution, which all women know has been biased against them, right? So, so them sort of saying, I don't want to run, is not just like, I don't think I can do it. It's like, I know that there are actual barriers in this institution, and I want to make sure that it's possible for me to be successful. So encouragement from political officials, from folks, uh, from women who've been in office is very influential, right? To say, I can help you navigate this. I can help you raise money, all of those things. Um, and the last piece in terms of their findings is around sort of relationally embedded decision making. So I make decisions about running for office. Women are more likely to make decisions about running for office based on how it affects and engages sort of the, those around them. This is not surprising to most folks, right? So I'm concerned about how it will affect my family. I'm concerned about how it might affect people at my job, you know, um, whereas the men uh, that we asked were less likely to be concerned about what their wives thought about their candidacy or um, those sorts of dynamics. Um, and then the last thing in motivation, they said, uh, we asked, what motivated you most to run for office? Um, and they had to choose their sort of top, top choice. Top choice for men, um, it wasn't the majority, but it was the top, the plurality, uh, said because I always wanted to be an elected official, right? So the office. Um, for women, it was uh, because I wanted to make public policy change. So the sort of short being men run for office to be somebody, women run for office to do something, right, um, is, is, is actually borne out not only in our data, but also in interviews and things that we've done. So this all gets us to 2018, which is how does that tell us why more women ran in 2018? And we tried to look into this by doing sort of an analysis of, of, of websites, you know, sort of what, why women said in media and on their websites why they ran for office. And you see a lot of that same argument, and it's not surprising when you're out in public and you're saying why you ran for office, it should be largely about policy. You're not like, I just want the power. Um, so that was consistent. So most of them are talking about policy. But the other thing they're talking about a lot in 2018 was that there is some emotional piece to this, that emotion matters in terms of perception of threat and urgency. So Democratic women were certainly using that language. Um, uh, and around 2016, so when I say they didn't wake up and decide to run, sure. But the 2016 election and the emotions it may have evoked certainly seemed to influence some women. Um, I found in that analysis that there was racial differences, and I think this makes sense. I can't fully explain it without talking to women directly, um, but black women were the least likely to publicly express a perception of threat, right, um, as the motivating force for why they ran. And I have two sort of hypotheses based in the literature on that. One is that the perception of threat was not new. So we think about emotion as influencing candidacy, it's the change, right? It's the like, oh my gosh, I now have this feeling and I have to do something. It can be activating. Um, black women have not had the privilege of feeling free of threat from our political, uh, from government and political institutions. So I think that's part of it. And then I think the other part is uh, the, the policing of 
women of color broadly, but black and Latina women specifically, on how they express emotion publicly. So I was looking at public statements of emotion, and so it may be that Shirley felt this, but we're not going to use it as a justification. Um, so what we learned, I think, from 2018 to the extent that we know exactly why women ran is obviously there are diverse stories, but in there we have to parse out sort of the role of emotion, the role of thinking about other folks, and the role of also seeing political opportunity in this moment and being quite strategic about running for office. And I should say I borrowed from Julie Dolan's uh, research on this as well of women who ran um, in, in 2018 looking as well at sort of Trump and the impetus for women running, which I think, you know, you guys effectively find as well in your research. So it's not to say that didn't matter, it's just, was it a singular story? No, it was one of many factors. Great, great, thank you. I'll give shorter answers, I promise. <laughs> Sorry. Prior to the 1992 election, sort of the first time we had a purported year of the woman, the share of Democratic and Republican women in each party's caucus in Congress was obviously very low, uh, yeah. but, the, but the share was about the same. The 1992 elections opened up a gap. They were, it was primarily, if we're gonna use that terminology, the year of the Democratic woman. And although mm -hmm. the share of both Republican and Democratic women increased in the, has increased in the House since, uh, as you noted, between the last Congress and this Congress, the number of Republican women in the House of Representatives went from 23 to 13. Um, whereas, of course, the share of Democratic women, uh, you know, increased. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Beyond the gender gap in the electorate, which we know was between somewhere between 10 and 12 points, uh, by which women in the electorate in the mass public are more likely to identify as Democrats than Republicans, the gap in Congress is obviously much, much bigger. What explains that? Uh, thinking about parties, women's groups, candidate emergence, party ideology, mm -hmm. shed some. Shed so some I'm, I'm going to give I'm going to give an answer, and then I'm going to like pitch a little back to you on this because you're the expert on this. So I'm. I, um, but I, I mean, I think, look, in the work we do, and we're looking, obviously, at these trends, where uh, the center that I work at is a nonpartisan center, right? So we always are sort of making the case that if we want to get to gender parity in politics, you're not going to do it on one side of the aisle, which is right, not going to happen. Um, and so we do value sort of trying to identify both what the issue is in the Republican Party and how we can address it. Um, to me, the sort of biggest takeaway is the disparities in support infrastructure, sort of what I would term support infrastructure for women in the Democratic Party versus the Republican Party. Um, and what is inclusive in there is, are there organizations or um, resources that are money, um, targeted recruitment, um, meaning the recruitment specifically of women, um, and support for them once they decide to run, so support throughout the campaign, um, training programs, all of those things that we do, the training programs and all of that we run one at the center, they matter. And one of the reasons we know they matter slightly differently for women is, again, because women are questioning, like, well, do I have to navigate a different system? Do I have specific challenges? I want to be prepared. And as well, we know women have to be more prepared. Um, so they want to have these support systems. At least that's what we have found historically. So there's disparities in those on Republican. The Republican, um, for example, uh, the, the Luger series, which is uh, some of you may be familiar with a sort of year-long training for Republican women, um, <clears throat> which actually mirrors what is now Emerge on the Democratic side. Um, the Luger series came up before. You know, it's, um, but those, the number of states that now have that, that different series, they have different names and different, um, has sort of dwindled for Republican women. Uh, Republican women's PACs, 
raised nowhere near the amount that Emily's List, um, which supports Democratic women raise. Um, and then when you get to party leadership and you ask about targeted recruitment, uh, you have Republican leadership saying, we don't play identity politics. Identity politics is bad. Um, and so it's really hard to reconcile uh, a targeted effort towards recruiting and supporting women with the ideological sort of point that has been made in the party that we don't want to get into that, right? We want to just choose the best candidate. And you've seen women within the Republican Party who have wanted to advocate for more women sort of have to push back against some of those claims. So to me, those things all are sort of the confluence of factors that create a system in which Democratic women um, are just more supported in terms of the recruitment and support. And I should say, Democratic Party doesn't get the credit here for like, they do it out of the goodness of their hearts. Um, they see the electoral value um, in doing it. So. Case in point, Emily's List is not giving to a, man, a male candidate. Uh, so if they're going to put a million dollars into a Senate race, um, the Democratic Party is incentivized to support a woman candidate if they need that additional financial support. So there are, there are real sort of brass tacks, politics reasons why the Democrats, and also in terms of voters and the gender gap, um, might be more likely to support women candidates. Um, but so I, I think those speak to some of the, the bigger issues that we're seeing and increasingly the polarization on issues and losing women voters um, is part of it, but we know that women don't just vote for women, so I try to avoid that as the, as the explainer issue. Did you wanna add anything to this? I, I, I'm putting you on the spot. Great. No, I, I mean, <laughs> one of the things that is interesting and I think contrary to both some stereotypes and conventional wisdom and perhaps how things operated in the past is that, you know, women in Congress, women in state legislatures, they are just as partisan as men. Yeah. So although we read these headlines about the Gang of Eight, the Gang of Sixteen, you know, all these gangs in the Senate working together, um, there's some special institutional rules in the U.S. Senate that facilitate that compromise needing to get 60 votes for most legislation, et cetera, Whereas in the House of Representatives and in most state legislatures, women are just as partisan, if not more so, than their male colleagues as they try to prove their partisan credentials. And so, so it's really, you know, these phenomenons are happening within two very distinct parties, and women are navigating different barriers within, within each party. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But I want to ask a broader question, sort of taken in part from one of the insightful questions from the audience, um, but turning to inside the legislature, inside Congress inside the White House, and if you could just speak generally to what your research says about the value of electing women to office. Sure, absolutely. So sort of to, to follow up on what you were just saying in terms of partisanship, this is an interesting piece in uh, the book we did. So the, the book, A Seat at the Table, is based on interviews um, with 83 of the women in the 114th Congress. So two Congresses ago, 83 of the women, uh, if you do the math, it's, uh, we did over three quarters of the women actually spoke with us, which was pretty cool for any one period of time. Uh, one thing that they did say to us, which if you look at voting, right, will sort of be contrary, is we're more likely to try to work together, right? Now they did say, at the end of the day, we're partisans, right? But they, and this was a struggle for us in writing it, right? Because you're like, okay, you, you're saying your approach is this, um, but we know in terms of the votes that you that you're not really any less partisan. Um, but I do think there's a little bit of a distinction here. Perhaps I'm grabbing at straws, but I I think that when I talked about what motivates 
women to run in the first place, right? Getting things done. That was the repeated, at least if we're going to say sort of line in response from the women about why it matters. We asked explicitly, why does it matter that you're here? Um, and they said, look, we're here. We worked too hard to get here to not get things done. In other words, we, uh, they all noted that actually one of the most sort of gendered story or gendered piece that, that, that came to them was um, the, the gender struggles or hurdles that they faced on the campaign trail. So we faced those, we got through them, we're here, we're not here now to not do anything. And so that there was a motivation, we talk about in the book as sort of achievement over ego, um, trying to get things done, and that that motivation may, <laughs> in moments, um, push them to be more likely to, to, either, to seek out possibilities for potential bipartisanship, but that it's not bipartisanship or camaraderie in and of itself that motivates them. It's like, can I get a bill passed? Um, and also because I'm going to be held accountable for getting bills passed when I go back to my um, constituency. So that was one of the big takeaways. And then, of course, you know, in all of the literature on the impact of women in politics, we talk about sort of substantive and symbolic representation, substantive representation being uh, what sorts of experiences and perspectives are brought to the table that wouldn't otherwise be there um, uh, were those women not in the conversation. And so we have a number of examples in the book of that, but you could ask any of the women in here, who uh, any of the elected women in the audience. Um, to also sort of look to those stories of uh, one of the cases, for example, um, in the Congressional Black Caucus, one of the, the Congresswomen said to us, you know, there's a lot of conversations, of course, around criminal justice reform um, and the high incarceration rates of black men, and obviously this is a concern and we're trying to deal with it. But too often, the conversation forgets um, both the increasingly high rates of incarceration of black women, as well as how high incarceration rates of black men economically affect women, um, and black women in particular, and families. Um, so bringing a perspective that may, uh, again, not otherwise not be there. And then symbolically um, thinking about the role modeling affects why does it matter. And we know in the political science research that there's mixed findings about role model effects. But then everybody you asks, <laughs> ask is like it matters. Um, so I think it's hard to, to have a tangible measure of role model effects. So I always just point to Many of you probably know this photo of uh, Barack Obama in the Oval Office, and there's a young black boy who he leans down and touches his hair, right? Um, and, and basically is saying, you know, somebody like me who has hair like mine um, is in this office. A lot of the women we speak to, not only for the book, but broadly speaking that we work with, um, note the same thing, that there is a value in young people, especially boys and girls, seeing women in public leadership so that we don't get to the point where they are doubting whether or not a woman is electable in public office, that it becomes in some ways normalized to see women in public leadership. And we actually have a project called Teach a Girl to Lead, sort of poorly named because it's really teach, a, uh, teach girls and boys that women can lead, um, and, and do the work to try to hit young people earlier with these um, uh, examples. And the women in office talk to us a lot about their commitment to doing that because they see the long-term institutional change that's needed. Great, thank you. 
reflecting on both working harder and sort of thinking about research on Congress, women actually literally give more speeches, introduce more bills, bring more federal money back to their districts, uh, are more legislatively effective according to some political science measures. Um, at some level, it's not surprising given that in most election cycles, women have more experience um, coming into Congress. But this leads me to uh, a great question from our audience. Senator Klobuchar said last night that if Pete Buttigieg were a woman, his experience would not be enough to be on the stage. What is your take? Yes, of course. Um, I, I do think I might be wrong, but I, I, we were talking about this last night, and I was like, well, every woman when they read that was like, uh-huh, right? I mean, like, I, I, it's hard. Um, it's sometimes hard. To, I, I feel sort of uh, sympathetic to the senator for having to then sort of explain it, because I think for, for women, um, it, it's like, yes, we know that we have to work harder. It's hard to pinpoint the, the measurement, you know, in the sort of that specific instance, um, but it, because it is so pervasive. Um, I will say the, one of the pieces of research that I just, I cite all the time on this because it is really tangible and sort of easy, easier to, to grapple with um, is uh, our colleague uh, Tessa DeTanto, who's done some experimental work looking at, so she sets up a campaign simulation, um, and then folks who are the participants, right, um, get these scenarios of here are the candidates you're looking at, and she'll vary the gender, obviously. And she says, here's all the information you can choose from to learn about this candidate. And what she finds is that voters, men and women alike, or participants, you know, potential voters, um, are more likely to seek out and click on competency-related information about women than they are for men. And what this indicates, right, is that voters are sort of holding women to that higher standard of like, I, you need to prove to me that you are competent for this level of office. There is more of an assumption of competency um, for the male, uh, male candidates. And I think that certainly speaks to um, in an empirical way what uh, Senator Klobuchar is talking about, which is it's the, the bar for which we have to prove our, that we can do this job is higher. And I would add that um, when Pete Buttigieg at the previous debate said about Elizabeth Warren, so he said, like, you don't really have a plan for this yet. You haven't told us your plan. This was the same person who for the first two months of his campaign said, we shouldn't be talking about plans. We should be talking about sort of our democratic values. And I don't He's not wrong, but there's no way, I would add, that I don't think, I don't believe there's a way that a woman candidate could have said, we just need to talk about values. The closest we've come to that is Senator Harris, who has said, I'm not an ideologue, I don't, or like, we need to study that. And she's been repeatedly criticized for not having a sort of concrete policy plan. So it, it's about, I think, I think the root of that, right, is about doubts about women's ability, in part because we haven't seen enough women in these roles. Thank you. Mm -hmm. How has the political landscape changed for white male candidates, um, both in the Democratic Party mm -hmm. and in the Republican Party, in the wake of 2016, in the wake of 2018, the Me Too movement, just in 2019 going into 2020? Mm -hmm. I think these are different partisan stories. Uh, one of the things I tried to track in 2018 
was the male candidate who had been accused of some sort of sexual misconduct or harassment and continued to run and win and were successful. Um, and there was evidence of that on both sides of the aisle, right? So even though we were in this moment where it was like, we're holding people to account, they were getting reelected. Um, and I had some reporters call me and be like, how does that happen? And I was like, partly because voters aren't paying attention. Um, you know, at state legislative level, you might not know that this was a scandal or that it didn't even raise to the point of a scandal because unfortunately this is sort of normalized. This is all to say that there was some of that negative I think example of, if I'm talking about disruption of gender in positive ways in our institution, we also saw the sort of perpetuation of like, nope, these guys are still able to win. Um, this was still, this behavior still wasn't penalized as um, disqualifying for holding elected mm -hmm. office. Um, on the plus side, I think, and, and, and I will say, again, the partisan disparity, the accountability um, was less so on the Republican side. So you had Roy Moore, and Donald Trump as the most notable examples um, in recent elections, but certainly some at the sub-level as well. Um, and we could get into public opinion on Republican voters and Democratic voters on sexual harassment, which helps to explain that, um, thinking that it's an institutional problem versus an individual problem. Um, but on the positive side, what we're seeing, especially in 2020, uh, are men who have to actually answer for their gender um, and race in a way that they have not had to before, in which women candidates and candidates of color have always had to answer for, right? So, so when the men are asked, like, well, is it really a good year for a white guy? Um, and they're like, uh, like, I don't know how to respond to that because I have never had to think about the privilege of you know, my race and gender as influencing my electoral prospects. I've, I've just assumed it was all me <laughs> um, that was getting to that point. Um, and so I actually think there's been real value in hearing them have to talk about that. And I also think it's changed how they talk about some issues um, on the campaign trail and the, the pressure that they feel to speak to uh, gender and racial equality, largely speaking, but also in politics. And I think some have done better and some have done worse. Um, so. I think the case, for example, with Beto O'Rourke, who got a lot of uh, slack and, you know, throughout the election for having sort of this white male privilege, and I don't doubt it at, at all, but he at least spoke about it. Kirsten Gillibrand spoke about her racial privilege in a way that most candidates previously had not. Um, <clears throat> and there are some, I think Joe Biden's struggling with how to grapple with how to talk about that. Um, and you see that hurting him among some voters, especially younger voters who are saying, I get your point, you didn't intend to offend women, right? But you have to be able to understand the position of power from which you act. Um, and so I actually think we're, the, the, the gender story and the race story and the intersection story for sort of the white male candidates in this um, election is, is really important for us to understand how gender and race are at play in elections. So pay attention to how they behave and how they navigate this, not only at the presidential level, but the sub-presidential too. Thank you.
We have some questions about various rules, reforms uh, that affect all candidates, but sort of wondering if there are disparate gender effects. And okay. so we have one question asking about whether or not lowering the voting age to 16 <gasps> would help women uh, and women candidates. We have another question about congressional district question. gerrymandering and whether or not mm. that would hurt or help women. Uh, and then also campaign finance and uh, the gendered effects on campaign finance. Just <laughs> we know that women congressional candidates raise as much or more money than men, yet every time you talk to women candidates, they yes. always talk about the fact that it is harder for women to raise money. And I think both those things can be true at the same mm -hmm. time. Um, mm -hmm. But just your thoughts on these uh, sort of rules of the game yeah, and their effect on women in particular. Mm. Um, I'm going to go backwards. So money, I think, um, is certainly the piece that uh, folks smarter than I have done really good research uh, to demonstrate uh, that even if the outcomes right mm -hmm. um, are the same that that getting there um, is is different for women so whether it be raising less um, it, that each individual donation is less that it takes more asks um, whatever it may be that the work the labor to achieve the same outcome so I would say sort of the gendered work to achieve gender neutral outcomes right is different um, and that is that is true of campaigns generally. Um, it is true in, in, I think true, uh, I would argue, in finance. And then again, there is a, even more distinguishing characteristics for, for women of color um, in some of the, the research actually that your graduate students have done. Mm -hmm. um, really helpful work. Um, so campaign finance though doesn't actually I'm be, this, I'm, this is like my unpop, tweeting my unpopular opinion. I'm not sure that we can pin our hopes on campaign finance reform for women. And I say that because one of the most significant, um, I would argue, factors to increasing women's representation, especially at the congressional level in recent decades, has been EMILY's list. Um, and so one way is to play the rules of the game, you know, to, to, to sort of, master the rules of the game as they are. And in doing that in finance, women have been able to leverage that financial power to get the Democratic Party to support women candidates and also to elect women candidates. Um, so you take away that potential advantage and you might take away some of the barriers on one hand and particularly, again, for women of color, Emily's List has not had a great track record in terms of the diversity of the racial and ethnic diversity of women candidates. So I think we're talking about maybe different stories here, um, but uh, it, is not, it is not a slam dunk. <laughs> um, when you take away money, it should ex expand the pool broadly of candidates who can run and who can be successful, um, and because of economic disparities of women over time, it makes sense to think that that would benefit women. Um, I'm, I'm just less sure because in the states that have done public financing, we haven't, the, the academic research is mixed on whether or not there's a gender effect. Uh, the other two, I, have, I see I filibustered on the first one because I have less on the, the other two. Um, gerrymandering, um, we tried to look at this in New Jersey in terms of redistricting uh, because we certainly saw women get pushed out more. Uh, I think for us, it was who's on, we have a commission. So who's on the commission? Um, it might matter just sort of who are they willing to sacrifice. But it's a very state-specific story, so I'm not, I'm not sure uh, writ large what that means. Um, 
I don't have a good answer to that one. And then um, on age, I really don't have a good answer. What we know is young people are more likely to be Democrats. That should benefit women overall because women are running as Democrats. Um, but in terms of specific support for like gendered support among young voters, are they more likely to support women party being equal? I don't think we have evidence that, that demonstrates that per se. Um, so I think it's like with much of this, it's a partisan story too. So if you benefit Democrats, will that increase the number of women in office? Probably. Um, and so in that case, you might argue for the lowering of the voting age. Um, but I don't, I, again, I don't, we don't have a good, I don't think we have good data to prove either way. But really good questions. <laughs> I'm going to go home and think about gerrymandering a little more. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the voting behavior of women? In, after the 2016 election, um, some commentators expressed surprise that 53% of white women voted for Donald Trump, even as Hillary Clinton benefited from the largest gender gap uh, that a presidential candidate mm -hmm. has seen, uh, which was, of course, fueled by women voters of color um, and uh, women voters with, with college degrees. So could you talk a little bit more about how women in the electorate are not a monolithic group and what that means for women's candidacies? Absolutely. Um, so let me repeat that. Women voters are not a monolithic group. We allow for, um, and I would say this for both voters and candidates, we allow men to have diverse opinions, beliefs, behaviors, identities, even how they look and present themselves, right? Like, we allow that diversity even within the same party. Um, and, and I think oftentimes we don't allow it or don't expect it from women. Um, and so I think part of this conversation, especially with voters, is always saying, like, yes, women are not monolithic, and we have to, yes, we might be interested in why not um, and, and how they differ, but we should be just as interested in that um, as, we, as we are among men and not shocked when they don't all vote the same. Uh, the squad don't all support the same things, right? Um, so, in terms of uh, in terms of 2018 and women voters, right? And historically, obviously, this gender gap in terms of women's greater support for Democratic candidates in the Democratic Party has been persistent since about 1980, even before a little bit, um, depending on on the measure you're using. Um, so overall, women are supporting the Democrat, but we also know this is a race story. And so it was not surprising to any of us who study this that white women uh, voted uh, in, in higher numbers for the Republican candidate. This has been the trend. This was not new to 2018, uh, or excuse me, 2016. Um, what was different that got a little less attention was that college-educated white women who had voted in six point, a six-point advantage among that group for Mitt Romney in 2012 actually flipped and voted as a six-point sort of advantage for Hillary Clinton in 2016. And so there was movement in, in white ladies, um, but there was movement in the Democratic direction. And there was simultaneously a sort of I don't know if entrenchment's not the right word, but a sort of strengthening of ties among non-college educated white women in the Republican Party with Donald Trump and, and Republicans writ large. Um, so noticing the importance of looking at educational background. Um, my colleagues who've done work on uh, hostile sexism, right, measures of public opinion around gender. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm being very simplified in the explanation of this measure, but to say, you know, things like 
like sort of feminism has gone too far, if we want to give the tagline from maybe some of those measures. Um, there are just as many that party is the indicator of that versus gender. In other words, there are just as many women, right, who are sort of have that same sense and perception of gender. And so that is gonna inform the type of candidates they support, what they will tolerate in a candidate um, in terms of Donald Trump, right, being able to say like, well, Yes, he said some things, but you know, ultimately at the end of the day, that's not what I'm worried about in a president. Um, and the last thing I think as well is thinking about the importance of you know, policy issues is gonna guide behavior for most of these women. And so um, if it is about choice, or pro-life positions that's gonna guide um, women in very strong ways um, on both sides of this issue, um, whether it be your financial liability. Um, and one thing we know from really great work from Laurie Fraser Oakley and Jane Jun and, and folks in our field who are looking really at uh, white women and, and racial privilege is you've benefited. It is, in fact, in the interest of some of these white women voters to vote for this candidate um, if you believe that that is going to be good for white people. Um, and you're less concerned, perhaps, about what is good for quote-unquote women because you don't see yourself in that identity, sort of primarily in that identity. So all of those sort of questions we have to be thinking about to not simply just go like, I can't understand, you know, there's just no way um, that they believe this. There are actually explanations that make sense sort of institutionally on why uh, women would have voted that way. Thank you. Yeah. I want to turn to the campaign trail and specifically campaign advertisements um, by women, against women, uh, yeah. and sort of uh, on television, social media. And if you could both from your own research and then your observations from 2018 and 2020, uh, talk a little bit about gender differences in campaign coverage, campaign advertisements, and social media. Awesome. Uh, so I love this sort of area because one of the things we have to think about, right, in, in terms of changing perspectives of how people see elected leaders is that candidates and their media consultants and their campaign strategists can actually play a significant role in being disruptive and challenging our conceptions of what it looks like to be a candidate, what sort of things you value, um, how you present yourself. So for so long, um, in a very, very white male-dominated area of political consultancy, which would be media consulting, um, you would have certain conceptions of what women needed to do to sort of run as women. And in many cases, it was like, just neutralize gender. You know, like, don't, don't make gender a thing because it might hurt you. Um, what we saw in 2018, and I, I would argue this started, it certainly started before. I mean, there have been women who've been doing this, not, uh, not just recently, but more so in, in a more concerted way in 2016 and 2018 was women presenting themselves vis-a-vis -vis ads, social media, et cetera, in ways that really directly said, I am a woman and this is the value added that that brings to my public service. And Hillary Clinton sort of said in 2016, unlike in 2018, you know, one of the quotes I often use is she said, um, I'm not asking you to vote for me because I'm a woman. I'm asking you to vote for me on the merits. But one of those merits is that I'm a woman. That was very different than what she said in 2008. And I would add, we could go back to Mark Penn's strategy memos in 2008, where he said the uh, country's not ready for the first mama president. They're ready for the first father president that's a woman. Basically saying, just prove yourself as man enough for the job. 
right? And you see that in 2008 in her strategy very much. 2016, Mark Penn, out the door. Um, other folks come in. She runs a different strategy, very much more inclusive of her experiences as a woman talking about discrimination, talking about being a mother, juggling, you know, just talking about what that brings and how that might inform her policymaking. Um, so again, not to say, I'm a woman, vote for me. I'm a woman, here's what how, here's how that affects how I view the world and how I view politics. So the ads we saw, some of the most blatant ones in 2018 that you saw in the news were, you know, women breastfeeding in ads. So we had two prominent gubernatorial candidates um, who uh, had their babies in the ads and one who I think held a Roy's in Wisconsin, I think maybe perhaps did it a bit more effectively in saying um, the reason why I'm showing this sort of visual um, is because it was having a baby that made me work on legislation uh, against BPA and bottles, right? Like in, in concerns about policy. Um, so making that connection very clear. I'm not sure how effective it was. Um, this, it's hard to gauge, uh, but certainly was willing to do it. You had women be more overt um, in saying that gender could be a challenge, but I've overcome it, right? So my toughness comes from uh, oh, an area that is less stereotypically masculine. So in Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's opening ad, the first line is, women like me aren't supposed to run for office. So let me just right now point to your bias, right? Um, let me just call it out and then move on. Um, and so we saw women do that both on the campaign trail and in campaign ads. Um, and then one thing that was distinct, I think, to 2018 uh, was women telling their sort of Me Too stories and doing that um, in some ads. So Sol Flores, who ran for the House in Illinois, has a really sort of powerful ad that actually got challenged in terms of being on TV which when you see it, you're kind of like, really? But it tells us more about our culture and, um, and how uncomfortable we are with sexual abuse. But she talks about um, being uh, sexually abused as a child um, and really flips the story to say, again, this is um, demonstrative of my resilience and my toughness. And toughness is a measure by which we've often sort of uh, evaluated male candidates and women candidates, but on the sort of brute strength, you know, um, my stamina and my, you know, I can, uh, what did Biden say last night? Like, punch it out, punch it, punch at it, punch at it. Um, but using that sort of rhetoric, um, but in a different way. And Sharice Davids, who ran in Kansas, also did that, talked about um, being a lesbian woman, um, being a tribal woman, being somebody who uh, struggled in terms of poverty, and that that right, was what um, brought her the sort of skills and perspective that would be valuable in office. So I think all of those are really positive examples and, and methods by which um, women sort of offered a new, a new route or new routes towards running for office. Thank you. Mm -hmm. There, in addition to uh, some former elected officials here, we yeah. have uh, some, some young women. What yeah. advice would you give to anyone thinking about running for office, uh, either you know, soon or 10 years down the road? So, I mean, I think what we're, we're seeing and what you should take from 2018 and, and I think 2020 is to not be sort of dissuaded by the underrepresentation overall, right? So you see the system and you say, okay, there's a lot of folks who don't necessarily look like me in these positions still, um, even though we've seen an increase. Um, but the data that we have and the sort of environment that we're tracking does show um, 
that we're seeing women really lead um, in a lot of uh, the change in these institutions, not just numerical change, um, but cultural change, policy change, et cetera. Um, and to sort of take from that, um, hopefully an interest in being part of that change. And it could be, you know, regardless of your party, it can be sort of like how can, in fact, if you are conservative, we need you even more right now, right, to sort of be a part of pushing um, for the change in representation within that party. So I think the opportunity piece, and then just, um, you know, the, the, brat, the sort of everyday stuff is I always push candidates, um, and, and if you want to just be in campaigns overall, um, to be thinking about these questions of gender and race in really thoughtful ways and in creative ways. In other words, to not go by the status quo when somebody says, well, well, you shouldn't really talk about your kids on the campaign trail. You know, folks are going to ask you questions about it. Sure, you might face different treatment and different questions, but what are the ways in which you can, in that role, really push voters and the institutions to change? Um, and on that, I'll just give one example and then, and then be quiet, which is um, Ayanna Presley, my favorite sort of example of this in the campaign and the clip is in our report so you can find it on the website. Um, so this is at a Kavanaugh protest in October of 2018. So very close to the election. Ayanna Presley, congressional candidate, first black woman elected from um, Massachusetts. She gets to the podium and she says, um, I know I'm not supposed to be angry because I'm a black woman, and black women who express anger, right, are called angry black women, right? This might hurt me. And then she pauses, and then she says, but I am angry. And, I, and she goes on, right? Um, and what she's saying in that moment is twofold, and I think it's a lesson for women in politics. One is that I'm calling out the stereotype, um, and, and I'm going to push you to think differently. So that's a, you know, thanks to her for being willing to do that work. But secondly, that's all the work I'm going to do now. Because the work is on you, the responsibility is on you uh, to change an institution to accommodate people like me in a better way. It is not my work to accommodate to the institution as it's been. Um, and that to me is really powerful and something that we should all be thinking about, right? But I think especially those who are underrepresented in institutions to, to both see your role, but also lift some of the burden off of you to accommodate institutions as they are, but instead put the pressure on others to change the institution so that they better accommodate you. Thank you. Yeah. We've been talking a lot about the presidency, congressional elections, a little bit about state legislative elections, but of course there are many, many important local elections as well. And in fact, parties have an influence in varying degrees in varying states um, for elections at, in, to all of these offices. So what advice would you give to party leaders, sort of differentiating by party, uh, the Republicans and Democrats respectively, on how to elect more women at every level of office, starting with local office? Yeah, um, so I mean, writ large, no matter what level of office? I think, you know, first of all, party leadership, one thing we see across the country, although somewhat changing, it depends on the, the state and locality, um, is just the underrepresentation of women and people of color in party leadership roles. So, first is get people to the table. Um, that bring different perspectives when you're thinking about recruitment, when you're thinking about who you're going to support in a race and what you value in a candidate, have different voices even in those initial conversations. Um, and then I think 
especially on the Republican side, to this point about, well, we don't play identity politics, I think there's got to be some reconciliation uh, of the fact that you're that by choosing or targeting um, recruitment of women or candidates of color or candidates who have diverse um, sexual orientation or gender identity, right, that that is not negating the merit that they bring to the office, right, but that it goes back to this line, the sort of Clinton line, which is that among the merits is that they bring a different perspective and they probably also bring you some different electoral value that you should consider um, donors, et cetera, um, if you want to be sort of quite strategic about it um, in thinking about the value of, of diversity. So it is not just your checking off a box, it is you're thinking about the real value of that and then think about how you integrate that. Um, I think Democrats also have to do that, um, but have seemed to see some of that value a little bit more. Uh, and then, um, you know, I think there's a question about parties intervening earlier. So in the Republican Party, um, one of the efforts by Elise Stefanik is to say, as, as a woman in the House saying, we need to support Republican women candidates in the primary, because as Catherine and others have shown, right, this is a challenge to get through the primary for Republican women in particular. Um, so the party may actually have to, to step in. Um, and so I understand why parties don't. We all understand sort of what their roles are in primaries, but this is something, again, they have to grapple with because the, the, the belief that they don't get involved in primaries, right? We know that they are, but it's sort of how and where they do that. Um, all of this applies, I think, across levels of office, um, but certainly at the local level where voters might not be as aware of this issue, there does, in some ways, there's a heightened role then for those who are doing that recruitment and sort of tapping people because often it's the tapping that is the person who ends up in office, if that makes sense, right? Like if, if there's not a whole lot of competition for that, that office or people don't know about it, then the party folks can play an even greater role. Um, and then the, the thing we always say to party leaders, which I guess is sort of conflicts with this a little bit, is also don't just say to women, start at the school board, <laughs> you know, and sort of like just start at that level. Um, and then, you know, so that the bias that's ingrained in that is like, yes, yeah, certainly we want more women at the local level, um, but they should be thinking more strategically about where their area of interest and expertise is versus the idea that it's somehow easier for them to get elected at that level. One, we actually don't have evidence empirically that it's true. Um, I, we know there's more women on school boards for a host of reasons, but it's not necessarily easier for women to get elected at the local level. Uh, and we certainly know that it's harder once they serve in the local level, because anybody who served in local office knows that when you go to the grocery store and you go to your kid's party and you go, like, the amount of pressure on you and the amount of burnout that we see from local level um, officials is serious. And so we always get a little like, we want you to run for the local level, but also there are a lot of other offices for which you can run and you should choose the one that suits you best. Great. Thank you. Well, please, everyone, join me in thanking Professor Kelly Dittmer for an you guys. excellent Thank conversation. You and now back to the hearings. <laughs> <laughs> and thanks to the audience for some yes, great questions. Thank you all for coming out.